Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. A private clinic in Ancaster is charging you for primary care. Plus a home invasion in Dundas, Hamilton's LRT, Hockey Canada's sexual assault scandal, your digital wallet, and a Super Bowl preview. Enjoy the GMH podcast. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There is a private clinic in Ancaster. It's run by five nurse practitioners and it is charging patients for primary health care. Open last month, it's called Holistic Solutions NP, and patients have paid for everything from an urgent same-day appointments to a routine checkup, and for a fee, you can also get accelerated private access to an MRI scan or a CT scan. It's got me thinking, isn't this against the basic principles of universal health care in this country? Well, the Ontario Health Coalition says, yeah, this violates the Canada Health Act, so... Why is it operating? Natalie Mera is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition and joins us here on GMH. Natalie, good morning. Good morning. How is this allowed to happen? Well, it's not. I mean, it's pretty clear. The Canada Health Act, what we won when we won public Medicare in Canada is that you cannot charge for access to physician um, or hospital services. And so you can't charge for access to a doctor or physician services, and you can't charge for surgeries and diagnostic tests and lab tests and so on. Under the current government, the Ford government in Ontario, we're seeing a whole array of different types of fees being creeping in, not really creeping in, they're flooding in, that patients are being charged for, and they're illegal. I mean, in our view, you can't just change who provides a physician service, so have a nurse practitioner or anyone else put up a shingle, and say we're providing those services and charge for them just because they aren't physicians. And I think that's pretty clear under Ontario law as well as under the Canada Health Act. The Nurse Practitioners Association of Ontario releasing a statement saying basically nothing's illegal because the Canada Health Act does not mention nurse practitioners, and you are saying fooey to that. That's right. You can't charge for a physician service. And if there is any ambiguity in Ontario's law, the provincial government is responsible for ensuring that that is made clear. And they could have done that, you know, months ago when this first emerged as an issue, and they haven't done it. But, I mean, the bottom line is that the services are covered. So those services are covered services under the Canada Health Act. And as I say, you can't just change who provides a physician service. So have a nurse practitioner do it or a physician assistant and then start to charge for it. That's not how it works. So the Ford government is responsible and they can and should if there is any ambiguity. And I'm not saying that there is, but if there is, they can close that, uh, you know, immediately if they want to. I mean, the real issue is that nurse practitioner-led clinics, we fully support 100% and always have. It was the Liberals that kind of opened up uh, a new set of nurse practitioner-led clinics, but they didn't allow them to charge patients. They provided them funding to provide those services. Uh, Under this government, they are allowing them to charge patients for those services, and that's just plain wrong. So this is happening elsewhere other than Ancaster? There are a few that have opened up in just in the last few years um, in Ontario, and, and they're charging patients directly for services. And as I say, you know, we're, we're trying to escalate activity to force the Ford government to uphold the Canada Health Act and Ontario's laws, which are the OHIP law. 
and the commitment to the future of Medicare Act, which prevents people from charging for OHIP-covered services. How are those discussions with the provincial government going? I mean, how long is this going to take to, to close what looks like a loophole here? Well, we're just working with our lawyers right now, um, and uh, we'll be bringing formal complaints. And I mean, for months now, the government has said that it's investigating these things, but they're doing nothing at all about it. Honestly, I think that it looks to us like that's just a kind of pro forma thing where you pretend that you're doing something, but you're not really doing anything. That's what it looks like. But uh, we're going to try and force the issue and really try and force for government to live up to, I mean, everyone saw Doug Ford on TV promising you'd never pay with your credit card, only with your OHIP card, at the same time as they're allowing all kinds of private clinics and these online doctor access, you know, these private um, companies that are now charging people for online access to doctors and so on, and now these nurse practitioner-led clinics to charge patients. I mean, it's a real problem. People... The reason we have public Medicare is that when you're sick, when you're elderly, when you're dying, when you most need medical care, um, you can't afford to pay for it. And most of the people who need care are elderly. They're on fixed incomes. And this is a real, a big hit to them. You know, it means that they can't afford other things like groceries and things that they need. Is there a fear that others in the healthcare industry will look at this idea and say, oh, wow, we can do that too? Oh, yeah, it's happening. It's like the floodgates. Have, I've never seen anything like this. You know, the floodgates have opened. The rhetoric of the government is always, oh, you'll never pay with your credit card. But, I mean, they're allowing it all over the place. And they're privatizing health care like we've never seen before. And, you know, we've got to stop it. Otherwise, we're going to lose public Medicare. We have a couple more minutes with Natalie Mara, the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about this private clinic in Ancaster run by five nurse practitioners that's charging patients for primary health care. You can pay a couple hundred bucks to get an urgent same-day appointment or even a routine checkup. From the foreign government standpoint, we know that they are allowing private health care providers to help deliver OHIP-covered services to alleviate the backlog in the system. Do you get the sense that secretly this government is saying, wow, this, these nurse practitioner clinics are helping alleviate the system, we'll just let them be? You know, I mean, their rhetoric, we can only go by what they say publicly, and what they've said publicly is that that shouldn't happen and, you know, won't happen and they're investigating and so on. But as I say, they do nothing about it. There's a lot of talk, um, but really no action. And we're going to have to force action on this. I mean, the real problem is that no patient in Canada, this is what we want. You know, a generation ago, no one should ever face medical bills at the point of need. That is not on. And uh, and so the province can easily, they could have yesterday, if there was any ambiguity at all in the law, and we don't think there is, but, you know, if there is, um, they could have closed that. And they should provide funding to these clinics. I mean, hopefully not a fee-for-service model, hopefully funding like when they when the Liberals brought in these nurse practitioner-led clinics, they provided funding for them. They didn't allow them to charge patients directly when they need service, and, and that's how it should be and can be. I mean, it's not like it saves any money. It just means that people, when they're sick or their kid is sick, they have to pay or they have to go without, and that is, you know, no one should have to face that kind of terrible choice to go without groceries or go without needed health care 
Um, and there's no reason for it. I mean, we can totally afford it. Ontario funds health care at one of the lower rates in Canada. You know, we fund our hospitals dead last in the country. I mean, there's a long way to go before we're even at the average of the country. Yeah, last check, the uh, provincial government had about $2 billion just kind of hanging around in reserve funds to do whatever. And that, that is money that should be well spent in the healthcare industry. Natalie we'll, Natalie, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Natalie Mera is the executive director of the Ontario Health Coalition. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton police still searching for four suspects after two high-end vehicles, an Audi and a Porsche, were stolen from a home in Dundas and what investigators have called a targeted home invasion. This happened last Saturday morning. Here with an update is Hamilton Police Constable Indy Barrage. Constable Barrage, good morning. Welcome back to GMH. Good morning, Rick, and uh, thanks for uh, letting us uh, shed more light on this, uh, what can only be described as a, a scary incident. Absolutely. We're, we're hearing reports this morning, and I'm not sure if you can confirm or not, that these stolen vehicles have been recovered in Toronto. Is there any truth to that? Now, uh, there has been some progress, so we'll be releasing information in regards to that uh, later in the day today. Okay, so you can't confirm that the, the vehicles have been recovered? Not at this point. I haven't had a chance to speak with detectives. We, I know there was uh, progress being made later in the evening yesterday, but uh, I haven't got that information uh, forwarded to me. So I'm waiting for detectives to get in this morning, and I'll have uh, our morning meeting, and I'll get that information out once I've uh, confirmed it on my end. There are four suspects in this case. Uh, are, have any arrests been made? Not, not at this point. Um, as you know, we put out a, uh, a video of uh, the surveillance of the incident in uh, hopes that uh, we can locate these suspects. Has those, I think there was three videos, have those videos generated any new leads or, or, or much um, feedback from the public? Like I said, there has been some progress made, in, uh, and, I, and I did understand that there was some, something happening in Toronto and that our, our detectives were heading out there. Uh, I do have to speak with them this morning to get uh, information on, and confirmation on uh, one thing being if we've uh, located uh, one or both vehicles. This was a targeted home invasion, according to investigators. And, you know, watching the video, these individuals are very methodical, patient, you know, nothing's rushed, um, but very scary in the same sense. Yeah, so from the surveillance that we recovered from the neighboring uh, residences and the home uh, that was targeted, um, it was observed that uh, shortly before um, that the Dodge Ram that the suspects arrived in was circling a neighborhood, and that uh, that gets us to believe that this home was targeted. This whole thing took less than five minutes, too, which is unbelievable, with these four individuals breaking into the home, um, uh, you know, accosting the homeowners, and then moving away from or from the home with the vehicles. In regards to the homeowners, how are they doing? Do you have an update? Yeah, so uh, during the time of the incident, there were two adult individuals, a male and female, that were in the residence. Now, what we can say is that they sustained no physical injuries, um, which is very fortunate, uh, especially because we have uh, informed you that there were uh, firearms that were brandished during the incident. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're doing well, and uh, our detectives have been in contact with them. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's all we can say for now. And as sad as it is to lose, you know, items that they worked obviously hard to get, these homeowners did the right thing. Yeah, uh, home invasions, home invasions like the one that occurred this past weekend, are difficult to protect yourself from, and uh, it, it's what they did was exactly what they should have. The victims, uh, we encouraged all victims 
to cooperate and let police investigate. Your safety is a number one priority and no monetary uh, property is worth losing your life over. Absolutely. Hamilton Police Constable Indy Barrage is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, any new information could be vital information. How do you um, expect the public to advise you or, or, or tip you off on new things that they see? What are you asking the public to do? Yeah, so uh, we're asking the public to, uh, as, after we put out those videos, we're, uh, that was our proactive step by releasing that crucial video footage uh, related to the incident. Now, detectives are asking residents in the area of uh, Hopkins Court and York Road in Dundas to review their security surveillance cameras between 4.15 a.m. and 5 a.m. on the morning of the incident uh, for any signs of uh, suspicious activity and uh, anything they see to forward that to our detectives that are uh, leading the case. Well, let's hope we can catch these uh, individuals and and make this uh, city just a wee bit safer. Constable Barrage, thanks for the time this morning. Oh, thank you for having us. That is Hamilton Constable Indy Barrage as they continue to look for four suspects in this targeted home invasion, four individuals breaking in to this home in Dundas with firearms uh, and basically threatening the homeowners to say, listen, we're taking your two IN vehicles and you can't do anything about it. And, and the homeowners did exactly what they should have, not fight back. Uh, you know, there, there are monetary possessions that uh, can be replaced. Lives certainly cannot. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What should have, at least by now, have been one, and that is Hamilton's LRT. Although you look along the proposed LRT route and... Not a hint of a track. You remember the Kathleen Wynne government promised LRT would come to Hamilton. That was back in 2007. That's a long time ago. In fact, 17 years ago. So there's an independent grassroots organization in this city called Hamilton Light Rail. And it is asking the city and the province to get a move on. Let's start building this thing. Great opinion piece in the Hamilton Spectator titled Time to Get Moving on Hamilton LRT and was written by Adrian Dizer, member of Hamilton Light Rail. And Adrian joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Adrian, good morning. Good morning. Shouldn't this have been built by now? Uh, you would think. <laughs> what is going on? I mean, I think that's the, the question of the year, right, is what is going on? I mean, you mentioned uh, 2007. Interestingly, the uh, LRT along this corridor was first proposed in 1960, believe it or not. Yikes. So 2007 was, you know, the funding component came with that. I know there was some back and forth and the MTO said, no, we're not going to do it. And then, you know, we've, we finally secured the government funding, but we're still a long ways away. I know some buildings have been appropriated, some have been knocked down. But in terms of the RFQ and the RFP, what's the holdup? How much longer do you think? Well, I think that's the key question here, right? Because typically an RFQ plus RFP process takes 18 to 24 months. The current version of this plan was announced on May 13, 2021, which is almost three years ago. So we are now, you know, well past a year or a year and a half uh, past the end date that you would expect for an RFQ RFP process, but it hasn't even started yet. So I really do uh, wonder what is going on with Metrolinx, what's going on with council, is appropriate pressure being applied? I mean, these are all outstanding questions that I think are key for the future of this project. Do you think there's an issue with the funding given where we are with inflation and interest rates? Well, honestly, I, I have no idea, right? But I, what I can tell you is that that problem is not going to get any better. Right. right. I yeah. mean, of course, inflation is coming down. But what I mean is that it's still going to be something above zero percent 
which means that the longer we take to build this thing, the more that we're going to need additional funding if, in fact, it continues to delay. And I think that, you know, a key concern for us as an organization is just that, you know, so long as we do not have an actual start date, so long as we don't have an RFQ, an RFP, or let alone tracks on the ground, there's always some opportunity for something to, you know, go off the rails, pardon the pun, right? Governments change, priorities change. And so this is a really important project for the future of Hamilton. And I think it's really, really important that we actually see some construction work so that we can all feel relieved that this critically important infrastructure project is happening here in Hamilton. Talking about Hamilton's LRT with Adrian Dizer, a member of Hamilton Light Rail. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. In your op-ed in the spec, you wrote, uh, quote, City Council needs to start pressuring the province to make building Hamilton LRT a real priority. Are there any signs that, that is actually happening? Is the city saying, hey, province, we got to get a move on here. Hey, Metro Lynx, let's get going. Well, again, it's not really clear, right? So I think one of the things we're looking for is more transparency and better ongoing communication from Metrolinx and from the city as it pertains to this project. Um, So, you know, there really does sort of seem to be an absence of clear communication. There's no clear timeline. So really, none of us know what's going on. And I think for a project of this importance, I mean, it's really unfortunate. We need to grow our tax base, right? We know that we have Uh, thousands of apartment units that are planned along the LRT line that represents tens of millions of dollars in annual tax revenue. And, uh, you know, without this LRT project, where is this revenue going to come from? It's a city that's already straining under the weight of aging infrastructure and a housing crisis. We need this investment so that we can grow our tax base so that we can have a prosperous future. And the lack of communication and clear timelines here is a real problem. In our final minute together, given we're not even at the RFP scenario, how much longer do you think it's going to take before we finally see some shovels in the ground? Well, who knows, right? But I I think something I wrote in that op-ed was that in, in Boston in 1892, there was a recommendation to build a subway there. Uh, They started construction in 1895, and they had service in 1897, five years later. So I think what's interesting, they did that with 1890s technology, but, you know, they also did it with 1890s American bureaucracy, Hmm. which I think has a sort of can-do attitude and a real ambitious sense of what was possible. They got it done in five years. It's taken us, depending on how you calculate it, anywhere from 17 to 63 years And uh, I think it's long past time that we uh, made some progress on this. Adrian, thanks for the time today. Thank you. Adrian Dizer is a member of Hamilton Light Rail. By the sounds of things, 2030 might be optimistic. (laughs) Jeez. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As you know, London police held a news conference uh, on Monday to provide an update on sexual assault charges against five players on Canada's 2018 World Junior Hockey Team. I want to extend on behalf of the London Police Service my sincerest apology to the victim, to her family, for the amount of time that it has taken to reach this point. Chief of Police Ty Trong offering an apology to the victim. We know that Dylan Dubé, Cal Foote, Alex Formenton, Carter Hart, Michael McLeod, all charged with sexual assault. A lot of questions, though, still emerging from this news conference and from this investigation, including, first and foremost, why did this take so long? Well, our next guest has the answer. Dr. Julie McFarlane is a member of the Order of Canada, Emerita Distinguished Professor at the University of Windsor and co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. Dr. McFarlane, good morning. How are you today? Good morning, Rick. Well, here is the question of all questions. Why did this take so long? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that we have to piece this together back to 2018. 2018 was when the alleged assault first took place, and the victim went immediately to police. And unlike the impression that has been allowed to gather in the meantime, she continued to fully cooperate with police, but they closed the investigation and sent her back to Hockey Canada. Now, you know, one of the things I want to make clear to your listeners, Rick, is that it isn't unusual for police to decide, oh, this is going to be a little difficult to prosecute. I mean, police, you know, have all kinds of issues around prosecuting sexual offenses. Uh, we're being told the organization uh, responsible will do their own investigation, so we'll just send the complainants back to the organization. In this case, it was Hockey Canada for their investigation. What we know now was, of course, that she was then... Um, NDA'd. In other words, she was silenced with a non-disclosure or, uh, agreement, which is what typically happens in these cases. And so we heard nothing more about this until 2022, four years later, when it was revealed that she had settled, she had been compensated, but she'd signed a non-disclosure agreement. Now, they have subsequently released her from that because there was so much outcry, but Hockey Canada regularly signs non-disclosure agreements with complainants. And the problem is that that just pushes everything underground again because that person isn't allowed to speak about the matter. So was this a failure on the part of London police to not work with Hockey Canada as opposed to say, all right, you kind of investigate this? Well, you know, it's, it's difficult to know, Rick, and obviously this is speculation. Hopefully we will know more in time. But it was extremely striking um, the way that um, Chief Jong apologized, the clip that you just played. And I think that that reflects their acknowledgement, even though they're not saying this explicitly at the moment, that they should have got this wrapped up in 2018. They should have pursued the investigation. Maybe it would have taken them a while, but they should have stuck with it because what's happened otherwise is it's just gone around in a great big circle and come back to them. And I know that the chief was, was very concerned to say, this is just one investigation, we've reopened it. But look, from the point of view of regular people, an investigation that was closed in 2019 and gets reopened in 2022, those are two different investigations. And obviously, they didn't do enough the first time. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Dr. Julie McFarlane, member of the Order of Canada, Emerita Distinguished Professor at the University of Windsor, co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. We're talking about the Hockey Canada sexual assault scandal in which we have a victim and five accused, and that court process will continue on April the 30th. NDAs, um, not just used by Hockey Canada. We understand that no. numerous government agencies use this. I, I hearken back to Jody Wilson-Rainbolt and, and her issue yes. with the federal government and NDAs. Yes. Well, these, these are used pervasively now throughout the, the federal government, both for their own employees, but also um, for federally funded agencies. Um, so Hockey Canada being one of those, but there are many others, of course, they're also used extensively in the church, in universities, in private corporations, such that we have figures, and these are um, reinforced by research in the U.S., that as many as one in three workers will sign an NDA sometime during their working lives. And believe me, Rick, those aren't to protect trade secrets and intellectual property, which was the original purpose. These are people often in fairly precarious, low-income um, occupations, 
And if they make a complaint about harassment or discrimination that's going to embarrass the organization, or even, in, as in this case, a horrible group assault, then they are silenced in order to preserve the reputation of the organization, and that takes place with an NDA. So are people signing these because they fear the repercussions, which might be job loss in some cases? Well, I mean, they often do a company termination. I mean, people are being told they have to sign these in order to get their statutory severance, which is completely illegal. I, I think that the you know the compensation package that people are owed um, for the harm that's been done to them is they're told that it is contingent on signing a non-disclosure agreement. Now, that's not the way the legal system works. We compensate people for the harm they've undergone. We don't have them uh, accept further conditions. And most victims, of course, simply want to remain very quiet and confidential about this. But they want to be able to talk to their families and their friends and maybe to a therapist. And the NDA stops them from doing even that. So we're finding that people are signing these often. Rick, without understanding fully what the consequences are going to be for them going forward. And those consequences are often mental health issues. Pretty scary stuff, and it's happening uh, more often than we not, as we've just learned. Dr. McFarlane, we'll have to leave it there. So appreciative of your time this morning. You're very welcome, Rick. Thank you. Dr. Julie McFarlane is a member of the Order of Canada, Emerita Distinguished Professor at the University of Windsor and co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Gen Z has a message for millennials. And that message is, not only are you chuggy, but you should ditch the wallet. What's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? Well, according to Gen Z... Those who still carry a physical wallet around are old and not with the times. (laughs) So I ran a straw poll in the office yesterday and asked, have you ditched your traditional wallet for a digital wallet? It's also the focus of a poll question today. So one person out of the, what, 28 responses, one person said yes. They're all in on the digital wallet. Six people said, yeah, but only for specific purchases. And 22 people said, nope, I'm running it old school. Reasons for those who did say yes or yes, but more convenient. You know, they always have their phone around. They use it for boarding passes, event tickets like concerts or sporting events, uh, points cards. You can put those in your digital wallet, PayPal as well. The reasons for no... And I heard this time and time again. They want to watch their spending. And they have trust or security concerns with digital technology, which is not a surprise at all. Barry Choi is a personal finance critic. You can check him out online at moneywehave.com. And he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Barry, welcome back to the show. How are you? I am good. Good morning. I want to get your take on our poll question of the day. Have you ditched your traditional wallet, you financial expert, you, or (laughs) (laughs) do you have a digital wallet? You know what? I always carry a wallet with me, but the use of my digital wallet has increased significantly ever since the pandemic, uh, especially since a lot of merchants stopped taking cash during that time. Um, But it's not like I'm never going to stop carrying my wallet, maybe in a few years, but right now... uh, to me, it feels wrong to not leave my home without my wallet. Yeah, let's get to some pros and cons, and let's start with the digital wallet. What What is great about it, and what is kind of, eh, not so good? You know, it's 
mainly the convenience you know during that introduction you were talking about all the different things you could have mainly loyalty cards and credit cards uh, i don't know if you used to watch seinfeld but i used to you'd use mm-hmm. this reference there's this one episode where george costanza busts out his wallet <laughs> and it's the size of a loaf of bread yeah and then everything goes flying in the air he's looking for this receipt and it was very comical and, and honestly some people are like that but most people these days aren't uh but, you know, when you're able to carry all your loyalty cards more than anything else these days, uh, especially when you consider that the average Canadian is part of about 14 loyalty programs and, and they're actively involved in seven of them, who's going to carry seven loyalty cards with them, like plus credit cards? You know, most people have like a backup credit card or two. I run a pretty thin wallet as is with only three cards, but that's still three cards that I need, right? <laughs> so when it comes to the cons of the digital wallet, um, you know, those trust and security concerns I heard time and time again. Yeah, trust is always going to be an issue. I have some good friends who are older who are tech savvy and they refuse to use a digital wallet. Uh, I personally trust, uh, you know, Apple Pay, Google Pay. But then at the same time, it's funny, you look at some of these major banking apps and they've uh, basically taken out digital wallet support from their own cards. So kind of like it's like, how safe are the, these products? But there's obviously the other thing. It's like not everyone has a data plan these days, right? Or even if they do, especially older people, um, they may not understand how to use it. Like my parents have a data plan that's relatively new to them that I just got for them. Um, but for me to try to explain to them, tapping with uh, a, your phone is so foreign to them, even though they tap with their credit cards on a daily basis. <laughs> Let's get to the physical wallet, pros and cons. I think that the cons are easy. If it gets like the Costanza wallet, you're in trouble. You're probably, probably going to have some back <laughs> yeah, pain, too. Yeah, if you too. lose it, then you're, you're, you're in big trouble, right? <laughs> uh, but that's why I always tell people, you, you know, you should basically minimize what you're carrying in your wallet more than anything else, right? Uh, that way, if you do lose anything, it's, it's it sucks, but it's not a big, big deal. And especially now these days with your your digital cards uh, or rather your online banking, you can lock your cards almost immediately. So so that's nice. It's, it's more like replacing IDs is, is a real pain. Uh, but obviously in Canada, we don't have any formal digital IDs that are counted. So you can't put your, your passport as an ID. You can't get your driver's license in Ontario. Even looking, doing some research for, for this, this talk, uh, not every state supports digital driver's licenses. So the person that spoke about this first was from Florida and they do exist there, but not every state has them. And obviously sometimes you just need cash. I still go to a lot of stores that either only accept cash or offer a cash discount. And I am willing to carry cash if it saves me some money. Yeah, when it comes to those uh, identifiable or those uh, um, ID cards, your driver's license, your passport, like we can't put that on our phones yet, right? That's exactly it. There are no laws in Canada that allow it to use. There's no official ones. Again, I was just doing some quick research. Uh, Ontario is looking into the ability to have digital driver's licenses. And if it's anything like our public transportation, uh, you and I will be retired by the time that's offered. Right? <laughs> so so I, I like it's probably 20, 30 years away. And those people, younger people that are making fun of us now can't even use them anyways. Right? Like, they'll be grandparents by that time it happens. We're talking about uh, ditching the traditional wallet for a digital wallet, and it is a, well, it's a tough go for many who have uh, had that traditional wallet for eons. And our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Barry Choi, personal finance expert online. You can check him out, moneywehave.com. So there are must-haves that we need in our wallet, our our driver's license, maybe our, our health card, uh, a credit card, debit card. Other than that, like four cards max? 
Yeah, that's really it. Some people will still carry their social insurance number card, and I don't know why, because it literally has no relevance on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Some people will even carry their birth certificate. You, you know, it's funny. My parents actually made this big deal about, oh, this is the most important identification you have, and, and hopefully my mom's not listening because I lost mine, and then I realized <laughs> it was like 50 bucks to get it replaced. Oh, no. right? It was actually super easy, and it's like, what are you going to do with this old school birth certificate? I don't even know who I am, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, minimizing your wallet is essential. You, you know, for some people, you might have to carry a transit card. Not all transit cards are digital, but you know, even here in Toronto and Metrolinx, you can now do digital wallet, which is actually significantly more convenient. Uh, so so there, there are a lot of options, but in general, I would try to minimize uh, what's in your wallet, especially if it's anything important that, that if you lost it, it, it could be painful to replace. Great conversation. Barry, appreciate your time this morning. No problem. Anytime. Barry Choi is a personal finance expert. Check it out online, moneywehave.com. And I learned something new today, and I'm sure you picked up on it too. The average Canadian has 14 loyalty cards, and they use seven actively. Wow, I'm way under that number, that is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are, as you know, just days away from Super Bowl 58 in Las Vegas, where the defending champion Kansas City Chiefs are going to be tangling with the San Francisco 49ers Sunday night. Haley Lewis is a host for Bleacher Report and the Big 12 Conference and Chiefs reporter for the KC Sports Network and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Haley, good morning. How are you? Doing good. How about you? It's a it's a busy week here in Kansas City. Things are pretty lively, but uh, excited for the big game on Sunday, that's for sure. Yeah, I'd imagine you guys are pumped once again back at, in the big game and against the 49ers. First and foremost, where are you going to be watching the game on Sunday? Yeah, so it's actually going to be a really cool spot that we got set up with. So Bleacher Report's coming in town, and we got the whole the whole setup, the whole crew's going to be here. And we're going to be downtown in Power and Light, which is where the main watch party is for the entire city. So it's going to be a huge spectacle, a, a whole stage, um, a ton of people coming in from KC. And we'll be looking over the stage on a balcony, doing a live stream and a post-game show, hopefully celebrating in Kansas City. The whole city kind of shuts down for this thing, so it'll be an exciting time. The defending champs versus the top seed in the NFC that many had pegged to be the best overall team in the league. What's not to like about Sunday's matchup? Honestly, it's great. You know, right? You have the Kansas City Chiefs who it, it, it kind of makes the story a little bit better that they did so poorly at times during the regular season. And I, <laughs> as a Chiefs fan and a Kansas City native, I hate to even admit that, but it makes the storyline even better, right? And here they are facing off against the Niners. It's a rematch for them, Super Bowl 54. They get a chance to get back at Kansas City and see if they can pull it off this time. But yeah, you, you kind of nailed it. This is a perfect matchup. I know a lot of people would have loved to see the Lions in and, and the Chiefs are now the villains, right, in everyone's mind. But hey, I mean, they'll gladly take the target on their back. So this is going to be a good one. It's it's a pretty good matchup. And also, it's going to be a challenge, I think, for both teams. It really it really presents itself as a perfect mismatch if you look at it from both sides. Kansas City is going to try to become the first team since the Patriots in the 2003-04 season and only eight, the eighth franchise ever to win back-to-back wow. titles if they do win on Sunday. Has that been a talking point at all either this week or this season? 
Oh, yeah, that's been a lot. That's been uh, pretty much the main main focus, I believe, because it's one thing to win a Super Bowl. It's another thing to get another ring. You know, Patrick Mahomes now has two rings. What what I think will differentiate him and separate him from other elite quarterbacks is if he can pull off a back to back. It's one thing, again, to get a Super Bowl and then a couple years later, get another one. But to do it two years in a row truly shows that not only your organization is elite, but your quarterback knows how to win multiple ways because it's never going to be the same roster. That's just the NFL, right? There's a lot of turnover, a lot of people trade in and moving around the, the league, which is normal. But I think for the Kansas City Chiefs to do it with the flashy Tyreek Hill, Mahomes magic kind of offense, and then for Kansas City to to do it again without Tyreek and do it with kind of this culmination of wide receivers where you have 11 different receivers getting to target every single game. And now they do it with a defensive sound or defensive kind of style team where Mahomes is more taking those checkdowns. It's not so much the Mahomes magic we're used to in Kansas City. It's more of taking those intermediate passes, playing smart and and playing to, to live another series, right? So this is going to be an interesting one, but I think if Kansas City can pull it off, they've truly proved in that they can win any any way you give it to them they're going to find a way to keep their head above water and and Mahomes will of course there be after in the conversation is he not only the greatest NFL quarterback playing right now but is he potentially one of the greats who will go on to combat the records that Tom Brady has put up our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Haley Lewis, host for Bleacher Report and the Big 12 Conference and a Chiefs reporter for the KC Sports Network. We're talking Super Bowl 58, Chiefs 49ers this Sunday night. A lot of the focus on Sunday is going to be on the players, and rightfully so, but both head coaches have had a massive impact on their team's fortunes this season. How big of a factor is Andy Reid and is Kyle Shanahan going to be on Sunday? I mean, they're both elite co coaches. You nailed it on the head right there. It's going to be uh, one of the things that we've seen in the playoffs happening so far is that Coach Reed has been able to outcoach his opponents and, and that time management and having things up his sleeve and different variations to not only distract the defenses, but also just, just switch things up on the fly. And a lot of people in Kansas City always wonder if it's really true, the conspiracy theory that Coach Reed doesn't give it all during the regular season. He keeps a lot up his sleeve, even though he could know he could use those certain plays or certain uh, styles to be able to win regular season games. Instead, he kind of keeps that in his little hidden treasure box, right? And it comes out during the playoffs, so no one could scout it, no one could be ready for it. Is that true? Maybe, maybe a little bit and, and maybe a little bit <laughs> just, you know, the conspiracy theorists out there for the Kansas City Chiefs fan base. But I think he has a, a lot of um, not only accolades to back up what he's been able to do, but just the, the veteran experience. Look at what he did with the Eagles. Look at now what he's doing with Kansas City. To be able to do that with two separate programs proves that you are an elite future Hall of Fame coach. And to be able to have the Lombardi Trophy in, in your trophy case is undeniable. Now you look across the sideline, and, and that's another elite coach as well. This is going to be a tricky one. So it's really, can can the younger coach out-coach Andy Reid? I'm not so sure. But it will be interesting to see what happens on game day because both of their offensive minds are so elite. It's, it's the top of the league. Yeah, the chess match is going to be fun to watch for sure. Last one for you. What do you make of all the hoopla off the field? We have Taylor Swift's much publicized <laughs> romance with Travis Kelsey. Uh, you know, Christian McCaffrey and his fiancee, Olivia Coppo, grabbing headlines. Uh, Kyle Juszczyk's wife, Kristen, with her amazing NFL-inspired clothing designs. Is, is any of this distractions this week? 
Yeah, I think the thing about the Super Bowl is it's really not necessarily always the best team that wins, but it's the team that can avoid all the distractions and stay focused and locked in on the ultimate goal. I mean, the Super Bowl is extremely distracting. Coach Reed has spoken about that many times in press conferences. I remember, you know, almost every single year leading up to the Super Bowl, he would address the media and all of us about the fact that it is so important to ignore the noise and block out the distractions and stay locked in. And the good thing is they've had so much veteran experience in the playoffs and at the Super Bowl that they kind of have this routine, that they have it down where they know how to keep players locked in. They know how to keep them away from the distractions. Of course, in a place like Vegas, right, it's even harder. So it's really a lot of the times the the team that can stay mentally locked in, avoid the noise uh, and stay focused, not giving the other team bulletin board material. That's why I love when Nick Bosa came out with his comments about the offensive line saying the only thing he remembers about him is that they hold it's like all right be salty that gives the chiefs what they need and the thing that coach reed will do is he's not going to allow his team to give any bulletin board material or anything to hype up the other team so i think the fact that the chiefs are very very close to the chest and, and keep it reined in will potentially serve them as an advantage but yeah you nailed it on the head it, it's going to be a it's a tough two-week stretch of staying locked in on what you're really trying to ultimately come home with Excitement is ramping up. Can't wait for Sunday. Haley, best of luck covering the big game and uh, good luck to Chiefs Kingdom. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah, maybe maybe in a week or two we'll be talking about that Super Bowl win. Could happen. Haley Lewis, host for Bleacher Report in the Big 12 Conference, Chiefs reporter for the KEC Sports Network. The annual Madden NFL football simulation of the Super Bowl is out as well, and it is predicting the Chiefs will beat the 49ers 30-28 to Now, Kansas City fans are probably not too happy to hear this because the Madden simulation has been wrong the last three years in a row. Although, the last time the Madden simulation was right, the Chiefs beat San Francisco in Super Bowl 58. So maybe it's on to something. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. 911.